Good morning. Please be seated. So we're continuing with our theme of um, uh, encountering God, and, and this week the sermon is on the God who hears us, and I've subtitled it In the Name of the Father, because Jesus taught us to pray to our Father to the extent that we call the Lord's Prayer our Father, be our Father. And if we look at the Lord's Prayer, we get a distinct picture of the form our prayer should take. I'm quite convinced that words are not the only format prayer can be offered in. I remember a story which uh, Bishop Robert Barron, who's a Catholic uh, suffragan bishop in Los Angeles, uh, told about a lady whose daughter died of leukemia. Uh, just as the, her daughter passed away, she went outside the hospital and started throwing stones at a statue of Mary. And the security guards didn't know what to do. The chaplain had been notified of the situation and uh, got there and prevented the security guards from stopping her and said, don't stop her, she's praying. We should not go from the one extreme, though, where we say that only, pe- only words constitute prayer to the other extreme, saying that we do not need to use words in prayer. We live in an age where people believe anecdotes over research and solid experience. In relation to words, there is a well-worn myth that 7% of information is conveyed by words, 55% by body language, and 38% by tone of voice. These statistics are based on research done in the 60s by Professor Albert McCrabian and his colleagues at the University of California. What is not as often quoted is that the research was based on single words, where the informants would play a recording of a person saying yes, no, or maybe, and then later shown a photo of the person saying the word. They then had to guess the emotion of the person that the person was exhibiting at the time of saying the word, not what the word meant. The experiment was repeated with different positive and negative words, and as a result of the findings, Professor Mahrabian presented his statistics. Please note, his findings did not state that words only represent 7% of information conveyed. His findings stated that you can more likely predict a person's emotions based on tone of voice and body language than by the words used. But that finding is too complicated to report and it doesn't make for catchy headlines, which is why we don't know the extent of the real findings. The purpose for this introduction is to suggest that maybe sometimes we treat God like the media treats us. And then then we're surprised when God, or disappointed when God doesn't hear us. I want to take us through some scriptures to illustrate that God does hear us, but this doesn't mean that God will respond the way we desire, or will even respond at all, other than sometimes to put his face in his hands and say, what did I do? (laughs) The first scripture is at the beginning of Exodus. We need to understand, uh, if we want to understand Exodus properly, we need to know that The first 11 chapters of Genesis 
forms the backdrop of Genesis. And Genesis as a whole forms the backdrop for the story of Israel. In Exodus 2, 23 to 25, we read, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The New Revised Standard Version says God took notice of them. The King James Version says God had respect unto them. And the complete Jewish Bible says God acknowledged them. The phrase is not easy to translate, but it suggests a response to Israel's groaning. But we cannot ignore the fact that it also says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we go back to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, we hear the word spoken to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then the most important part. All and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There was a reason for the covenant. It was not just a covenant for Abraham to keep for his own family, but one through which all families of the earth were to be blessed. Likewise, what God has given us is not for ourselves, but through ourselves for others. We find a resonance between Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3, where God promises something to Abraham, a Chaldean, and in John chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, where Jesus promises something to a Samaritan woman. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And then again later in John chapter 7, on the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. This story that we find ourselves in, this biblical story, is one which describes God and his response to humanity through the family of Abraham and his descendants. We need to be so in tune with this story that we know what to ask for. And when we ask for things which move the story towards the target which God is aiming for, then God gives it to us. When we ask for things which go against God's purposes, he doesn't give them to us. This is a constant refrain in the Bible. In Psalm 66, a psalm of praise, the psalm reaches its climax in verses 16 to 20. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has given heed to the words of my prayer. 
Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Psalm 145, another psalm of praise, reaches its climax in verses 17 to 20. The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all of his doings. The Lord is near to him, to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. In other Psalms too, we hear the refrain that God hears the needy. In the second book of the Psalms, comprised of Psalms 42 to 72, we have a fair number of communal lament psalms. Psalm 69 walks us through a long list of complaints about the dire situation Israel finds themselves in, from verses 1 to 12. From verses 13 to 18, the psalmist puts in his petition for God to rescue him, before listing what God should do to his enemies in verses 23 to 28. Then, from verse 29, he puts his trust in the Lord, and in verse 33, we hear the words, For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own that are in bonds. <clears throat> About three centuries after the Psalms were written, in Isaiah, uh, we hear the words in chapter 65, after first declaring judgment on the disobedient, God says verse, in verses 17 to 25, For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered a curse. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the walk of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. About a century later, just after Judah has gone into exile, Jeremiah records these words. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. 
See, the false prophets were telling the Israelites that their exile would be three or four years and then it would be over. And it's not unlike it is today. We tend to want to listen to the people who tell us what we want to hear rather than the truth. I'm reminded of the words of G.K. Chesterton who said, Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Jeremiah goes on to say, For thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's seventy years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This theme continues into the New Testament. In Peter's first letter to Christians who were suffering under persecution, he quotes Psalm 34 saying, Those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then, of course, we have our dear brother James with, You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. David, Pastor David, not King David, <coughs> has often used the expression, Jesus is God with skin on. And this is, of course, sound theology, and it is the testimony of the Gospel writers. But we Westerners have a very significant problem, a critical problem, in fact. Sitting so far from Jesus in space, time, and culture, we tend to have a concept of God that is formed more by popular culture, philosophy, and even theological categories. But the God we find in the Bible is a storied God. We learn about God in his journey with Israel and ultimately in Jesus. But what we tend to do is we take our preconceived ideas about God and we slap skin on them and say, this is who Jesus is. What we need to do is we need to give up our ideas about God, look at Jesus, understand Jesus in his first century context, and then start building up our ideas about God around Jesus. I repeat, we don't slap skin onto our preconceived ideas about God and say, this is Jesus. We look long and hard at Jesus and then build upwards from there. And to understand Jesus' first century context and his heritage, we have to spend more time in his story, his whole story, 
from Genesis to Revelation. I know I'm guilty of this, but I'm also willing to bet my bottom dollar that almost everyone in this congregation spends more time listening to popular media, watching TV, listening to contemporary music, reading the news, or watching movies than they do reading the Bible. We have become very fluent in the story of modernity, but we don't understand the story of Jesus. So when we pray, we ask for things in line with our story, not Jesus' story. We think that we are asking for the right things, but actually we are just asking for things that are convenient for us. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and for his will to be done before we continue with give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. We pray for the kingdom of God before we pray for our own needs and the needs we pray for are what will help us to participate in this kingdom project of Jesus's. I don't want to suggest that if you feel God does not hear you, that you are necessarily asking for the wrong thing or experience, or even the right thing with the wrong motive. But based on scriptures, it is the most likely area where we are missing the mark. The Greek word for sin is a term borrowed from archery, hamartia, which means missing the mark. There are two ways we can miss the mark. We can fall short of reaching the target, which sometimes happens when we are aiming in the right direction. Or, we can miss the target, and that is when we miss the point, i.e. we do not grasp what it is that we should be aiming at in the first place. The sin I think the Western Church is most guilty of is the sin of Gnosticism if not in profession, certainly um, in action. In its simplest form, uh, so I've already suggested we should actually do a couple of, a couple of Sundays on the themes of uh, what's competing with Christianity for our beliefs, um, of which Gnosticism would form. But Gnost in its essential form, Gnosticism is about having secret knowledge, Gnosis being knowledge in Greek. And that secret knowledge gives us the key to escape this material world to go into a disembodied heaven. The passage I read from Isaiah earlier gives us a vision of the future God wants to create for us, where people build their own houses and live in them, and people plant their own vineyards and eat from them. How appropriate is that for us in the Cape, where we have such a housing backlog and where you have seasonal workers who go and work on vineyards and then literally see the fruits of their labors being exported to other countries. When we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, how do we understand that? Do we get a picture of justice and mercy for the homeless and unemployed? Or do we get pictures of ourselves without struggles? Last year, the members of St. John's Leadership Academy went to Sweet Home Farm to look at the projects of a community leader and an architect from the UK. They are spearheading a project where the members of the community build their own houses using sand, something in abundance on the Cape Flats, and plaster. 
solid houses, which are well insulated, even with more than one level. Charlene Swartz, who came and preached here two years ago, was so impressed that she even developed plans for her own house in Hermanus to be built like this. These community members are taking God's vision for the future very seriously and are building towards it. It hasn't been easy. For 10 years, they have had to struggle with a skeptical city council and other members of the community challenging the community leader for his position to the extent that people have even taken out hits on his life. Following God's call will not grant instant answers to our prayers, but I assure you, he hears them and does not turn his face away from those who are seeking to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. What are you going to make God's vision for the future a reality here in Cape Town? Let me read that again. What are you going to do to make God's vision for the future a reality here in Cape Town? How are you praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Is God not hearing you because you are asking for the wrong things or because you ask with the wrong motive? If you suspect you need to have your sights recalibrated so that you aim in the right direction or so that you aim far enough, ask the Lord to open your eyes so you can see better what he wants you to do. I've tried to demonstrate that God hears those who are needy, or that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. I've tried to demonstrate this by quoting from the Torah, quoting from the prophets, quoting from the Psalms, and quoting from the New Testament. I'd like to end by quoting from the Gospel of John. On the lips of Jesus, just after his last supper with the disciples, and before they leave for the Garden of Gethsemane, we hear. So you have pain now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On that day, you will ask nothing of me. Very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made complete. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. On that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. Amen. Thank you, Philip. Let's take some quiet as we respond to God.